Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and this week we're going to talk a bit about pericarditis. Now, pericarditis isn't terribly common, but you'll see it a couple of times a year in your practice. The key is going to be identifying which patients with chest pain have pericarditis and making sure that you aren't missing a myocardial infarction. Pericarditis has a pretty simple definition. It's inflammation of the parietal and or visceral layers of the pericardium surrounding the heart. There are a host of different causes of pericarditis, ranging from the infectious to the toxic metabolic, things like uremia, to systemic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, to post-injury, as is seen after surgery, trauma, or a myocardial infarction. For most of our patients, the cause is going to be unknown, but presumed to be viral in origin, which is why we often ask patients if they had a preceding illness. Now, patients with pericarditis will typically present with chest pain that is sharp or pleuritic in nature. It improves with leaning forward and worsens with lying flat, and it may radiate towards the trapezius ridge. Patients may have a fever or recent infectious symptoms as well. In general, your physical examination isn't going to show you too much, but it can be useful in ruling out other causes of chest pain. If you're lucky, you may hear a pericardial friction rub, but these can intermittently be present and it can be difficult to hear them because our EDs tend to be not so on the soft side. There are four diagnostic criteria which take into account all of this history and physical information and add a couple of other things as well. To make the diagnosis of pericarditis, you need to have two out of the following four criteria. Number one, classic chest pain history, sharp, pleuritic, positional with radiation to the trapezius ridge. Two, the presence of a pericardial friction rub. Three, a pericardial effusion on echo and four characteristic EKG changes. The most common of these are gonna be the chest pain story and the EKG, so let's delve a bit into that 12 lead. Awamatu has some excellent reviews of what to look for on the EKG, and I'm gonna drop a link to one of his vodcasts in the show notes. The first and most important thing with the EKG to do is to rule out an ST elevation MI. Many patients with pericarditis can have chest pain that sounds like ACS type pain. The EKG often gives away the diagnosis as a STEMI, but occasionally we don't pay enough attention to the details. So anytime you're thinking pericarditis, think STEMI first. The most common miss here is going to be the inferior STEMI, because the inferior leads, 2, 3, and AVF, are also the ones that often demonstrate significant ST elevations in pericarditis as well. Now, what findings on EKG are more likely to represent a STEMI? Number one, convex ST elevations. Pericarditis ST elevations are concave up like a smiley face. Number two, concomitant T-wave inversions with the ST elevations. You should definitely not see those with pericarditis. Number three, any reciprocal changes. So any ST depression, with the exception of AVR and V1, should make you think that this is a STEMI and not pericarditis. And then number four, Q waves or dynamic changes on the EKG when you repeat it after a bit of time. The EKG in pericarditis isn't going to change over 5, 10, or 15 minutes, but we commonly see this with STEMI. Now, if you see any of these, assume you have a STEMI, activate your cath lab, or rally your cardiologist to see the patient. 
Back in 2001, Brady and colleagues looked at the ST elevation morphology and found that any non-concave morphology was specific for STEMI. And in 2015, Bischoff and colleagues found that any ST depression in AVL was both sensitive and specific for STEMI, and particularly in differentiating pericarditis from inferior ST elevation MI. All right, so now that we know what to look for to help us diagnose STEMI, let's talk about what we see in the EKG in pericarditis. The EKG changes go through phases. In stage one, which occurs over hours to days, it's characterized by the classic diffuse concave up ST elevations. Again, there's going to be no reciprocal changes here. At this point, you'll also typically see PR depression, and you may catch a spotic sign, which is a downsloping of the TP segment. In stage two, which occurs more like weeks after the onset of pericarditis, you can see ST and PR segments start to normalize and the T waves may flatten and then eventually become inverted. Finally, in stage three, all of the changes start to resolve, although T wave inversions may persist indefinitely. Once again, I can't stress enough that the first thing to do isn't to look for the PR depression or the spotic sign, but rather to make sure you're not dealing with a STEMI. Convex ST elevations, concomitant T wave inversions with ST elevations, or any reciprocal changes, and you should be very worried about STEMI. When in doubt, call cardiology, get serial EKGs, and look for dynamic changes. And we mentioned pericardial effusion in the diagnostic criteria, which means we need to talk a little bit about point of care ultrasound. I frequently find a pericardial effusion in my patients with pericarditis, but they tend to be on the small side. Patients with things like uremic pericarditis or cancer-related pericarditis can often have larger effusions. It's important to take a look with POCUS, not just to make the diagnosis, but to make sure the patient doesn't have a large enough effusion that they may actually require drainage or at least close monitoring and follow-up. What about blood work? It's mostly not helpful in this diagnosis. If the patient has an underlying rheumatologic diagnosis, well, there may be some labs that you're going to get to help your consultant in management. I would expect to see an elevated white blood count in most patients with pericarditis, but that's not really going to differentiate them from STEMI as any stress can bump a white count. Troponins are often ordered, and that's not entirely unreasonable. In true pericarditis, there shouldn't be much, if any, troponin spilled into the bloodstream. However, in myocarditis or myopericarditis, troponin elevations are common and may change management. It's hard to know exactly who needs a troponin, but if you think the myocardium is involved, a troponin is reasonable. I think about myocarditis if the patient has a tachycardia that doesn't fit their presentation. So the tachycardia doesn't resolve with pain and fever management, or simply if the patient looks sicker than I would expect with pericarditis. All right, let's talk treatment. Chris Bond over at the SockMob site created a great pauses verbis card detailing treatment, and that'll be dropped in the show notes as well. Generally, treatment should be with either an NSAID or aspirin and colchicine. The optimal regimen for NSAIDs and aspirin isn't known, but you have to give the patient a taper or else the pericarditis can rage back. Typically, this is going to be about 30 days of these medications. The colchicine here is critical as well. A recent New England Journal of Medicine paper back in 2013 showed that the use of colchicine decreased the rate of incessant or recurrent pericarditis with an NNT of just four. I frequently see this medication skip because lack of familiarity or worries about side effects, but it's critical to use. The PV card from Chris Bond in the show notes also includes all of the contraindications to colchicine use. 
Finally, these patients should all get PPIs for the duration of their colchicine treatment, about three months, to prevent GI side effects. And of course, don't forget about getting them close cardiology follow-up. Most patients with pericarditis can go home, but the POCUS, EKG, and labs can help you decide who needs to stay. If I think the patient has myocarditis, especially if they have an elevated troponin, I'm going to admit for cardiology to see and to get a formal echo looking for wall motion abnormalities. We don't always think about it, but myocarditis can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. If the patient has a moderate to large effusion, I'm probably going to admit them as well. And finally, if the diagnosis isn't clear, meaning that STEMI or ACS is still on the table, I'm definitely keeping the patient. All right, let's wrap it up with some take-home points. Number one, always consider STEMI as the diagnosis prior to diagnosing pericarditis. If the EKG shows convex ST elevations, reciprocal ST depressions, or dynamic changes, the patient is much more likely to have an ST elevation MI. Patients with pericarditis should be treated with a combination of NSAID or aspirin and colchicine. And of course, don't forget to give them that PPI. The colchicine here is critical because it reduces the risk of incessant or recurrent pericarditis. Finally, patients with large pericardial effusions, tachycardia out of proportion to fever or pain, and troponin elevations are more likely to have complicated courses and should all be considered for admission. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. On Wednesday, we'll put up a post on pericarditis that goes along with this podcast. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.